Hello and welcome back to RocketBot, the podcast where myself, Harry Damon, James Cuss and producer Peter Haynes are on a mission to find some of the most incredible visionaries from across the world. And today our guest very much ticks all of those boxes and I'm very excited to bring on the mic American zoologist Dr. Laurie Marker, who is the founder of the most successful cheetah conservation fund in Africa. Let's get it going. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Laurie, uh, as, I, as I said. Um, so we'll, we'll do kind of a formal introduction on the, the actual the formal intro, but, but Laurie is uh, the founder of the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Uh, and uh, so, and is doing wonderful work uh, to save the cheetah. So how, how, does a, a, how does an individual from Detroit, Birmingham, uh, get to live in Namibia for 30 years? Could you talk to, me, talk to us a little bit about your childhood and kind of what, what, um, what sparked your interest in, in cheetahs and, and, and Africa? Uh, it'd be really wonderful to, to hear kind of how you got started. Well, I did grow, I was born in Michigan, so uh, Birmingham and Detroit area. But my family were, had back, you know, family farms. And so we'd always go and visit my grandparents at their farm. And so I grew up on the back of a horse, I always say. Um, and, you know, always thinking that, you know, why didn't we have those sheep at the house in Birmingham? Well, obviously, when I was young, I didn't understand you're not supposed to have these animals in your backyard. Uh, and so we moved when I was four to California. And there we did have all of the animals in our backyard. So again, I had my horses, I had goats, rabbits, dogs, uh, was, you know, in 4-H, did, you know, future farmers of Africa, did pony club. But horses were still my focus. And as I was um, growing up, my family then moved up into Northern California, where I started realizing that things like organic gardening were kind of good. And so my first college degree was in organic gardening. And then morphed that into um, grape growing and winemaking. And so I'm actually a trained winemaker and went from Napa, um, where I was in college, um, to and, and Davis, up into um, Oregon and was one of the pioneers of the Oregon wine industry. Now, this is an important part because I packed up my, my goats and my chickens and you know headed up into Oregon to my vineyard and lo and behold, a wildlife park was just a about five miles away from my my vineyard and my my new winery that we were starting and developing. And I went down there and I said, "Yeah, I just have moved here and I need a job to support my business." Um, and um, here's my background as an animal person, and I was hired pretty much immediately to run the clinic, the veterinary clinic. And back though, then I mean, this was back in the 1970s. There wasn't a lot of um, trained veterinarians in wildlife at that point. I was not either, but I was an animal person and really developed over a 16 year period of time, this wildlife park, which became one of the most successful breeding facilities for cheetahs in the world. And that was where my focus yeah. was, although I'd raised 600 other kinds of animals and ran this amazing, um, huge safari park um, my focus continued on the cheetah. So that's really how I ended up in wildlife. It was through good wine. Um, oh, wow. So, <laughs> so, so why the cheetah then? So you obviously had a lot of experience with lots of different animals. So you're obviously an animal lover 
Um, so, so why, why, what attracted you to the cheetah? What is special about that animal? Well, when I first, when I got there to the wildlife park, it's called Wildlife Safari, very similar to your Whipsnade Park. Um, and maybe lions of Longleaf type, but I think more like like a whipsnake in, in that time. Um, and it was just fascinating because um, the logo of the wildlife safari was the cheetah, and yet the cheetahs were not on exhibit. And I wanted to know, well, where are these cheetahs? What is it? I've really never even seen a cheetah before. You know, what kind of cat is this? And um, nobody knew anything about cheetahs back in the 70s. So it was fascinating because the director then said, well, if you're interested in them, then, you know, ask people about them. And so I started writing letters to zoos around the world. Remember, that was when letters, when you wrote letters. <laughs> and so, yeah. I'd launch letters out into the world and, you know, a couple months later, I'd get answers back. And those answers primarily were, you know, people have known about cheetahs for about 5,000 years. They've been, you know, revered by kings, emperors, and princes. But with that, today, we're losing the species. Nobody knows anything about them. They don't do well in captivity. They don't breed well, and they die at a young age. And we're losing them in the wild. But when you learn something about cheetahs, let us know. And I think that that's maybe the thing that that did it to me is that they were just amazing and nobody knew anything about them. And I wanted to know everything about them and tell the rest of the world about them because we were losing them. And then in the middle 70s, I ended up um, doing a research project in Namibia where I um, was there for several months. And my job was to actually take a cheetah that had been born in captivity at our facility to um, Namibia and find out what steps were involved in teaching a cheetah how to hunt back into the wild to find out if captive animals, cheetahs could ever actually help the wild populations. And so when I was in Namibia, I found that I taught my cheetah how to hunt, although it took several months um, and she was young still. But what I found is that farmers were killing cheetahs like flies, like hundreds of cheetahs a year mm -hmm. in, um, in Namibia alone, I think in the 1980s, the farmers had killed like um, close to seven or 8,000 cheetahs. Wow. Uh, and that's what I I mean, it was just amazing. And I thought, well, somebody's got to do something about this. So that's how I ended up in Namibia. That's how I ended up, you know, caring about cheetahs. And then I, in the early 80s, in my research, I was back in Oregon. My research continued because we had one of the only breeding facilities for cheetahs in, in the world, really. Um, I did mention Whipsnade. They also have always had cheetahs and did very well. They were the second most important facility. Uh, but out of that, um, we actually um, discovered with a team from the National Cancer Institute in the United States and the Smithsonian Institute, the cheetahs lack genetic diversity. And so my, my background at that point, you know, was very focused on reproduction, you know, captive breeding management, and then trying to figure out now more about the overall health and the genetics. And that really has been the driving force of a lot of the research that has gone on now in the last, in my last 40 years of, of research. Um, what, what makes up a cheetah? And obviously if they lack genetic diversity, um, that causes a lot of problems and those problems revolved mm -hmm. around reproductive issues, overall health issues, disease issues, um, and then that has sort of made us focus on all the things that we do um, in the, the wild to try to save the wild populations. So I ended up then in 
1990, after you know this whole interaction of you know, research and captivity, moving to uh, in the late 80s, I moved to the Smithsonian, Washington, D.C., where I continued with my research. And when Namibia got its independence, which I'd been back and forth into not only Namibia and other areas of Africa many times, trying to find out where the best place would be to set up a cheetah center um, to try to help save the species in the continent. And Namibia just resonated. It kept coming back. But this is if we're going to save the species, Namibia was the best place to do it. And so Namibia got its independence in 1990. And that's when I moved there and set up our international foundation. And we've been based there for now over 30 years. Wow. And was it? <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And I'm, I'm sure that time has gone. I mean, 30 years, it, it sounds like a it sounded like a long time, but I'm sure it's gone really quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of your lifetimes there. So Peter, I guess yours. And with something <laughs> like that, I mean, you know, where does time go and what happens? And with that, I think, you know, long-term research is so important because that is how you get involved in conservation and the depths of conservation that's needed today is beyond what most people understand because sadly our earth is, you know, very endangered and it needs us to, to change the world. And our motto at Cheetah Conservation Fund is save the cheetah and change the world. That's amazing. That's amazing. Actually, one thing you mentioned during that is you said that the cheetahs are being killed like flies. Now, why were these farmers killing so many cheetahs? Well, it is a, it's a problem for predators around the world. So all of our predators are actually very threatened to, um, and vulnerable to, you know, extinction processes because of um, us as humans. Uh, but it's human wildlife conflict. So we have our livestock out there. And if your livestock's not managed properly, then predators will come and kill your livestock. But then there's also preventative methods. So it could come and kill your livestock. And therefore, I'm going to kill it first. And so that was a lot of it was a preventative. And as the farmers have said, because I've spent a lot of time you know, talking with them, um, you know, with the, the community work that we do and the farmer work that we do, it's all very personal and getting to know everybody and their histories. But they always say, you know, my father's killed him, my grandfather's killed him. It's just what has to happen. And these are issues that we also have learned about throughout the rest of the cheetahs regions. And I mean, I, I should probably put this all in perspective for you as well. Today, there are less than 7,500 cheetahs left in the world. Wow. And at the turn of the century, about 1900, there were thought to be about 100,000 cheetahs. So you can see that decline has been in a, you know 120 years, um, over 90% of the population has wow. gone and their range. Today, they're found in about 23 countries in 31 populations. And from that, um, over half of those populations are less than one to 200 individuals, which again mm. is not enough to maintain genetic diversity. And mm. um, so my research then really has over the years um, been the baseline to understand, you know, nobody knew anything about cheetahs. And that's what I have done is to teach the world about them. You know, everything that not only from biology, but their ecology, how they live, where they live and how they're living most of those populations are living outside of protected areas. And so I think when people think about wildlife, they think about 
national parks. And then we mm -hmm. all are happy because the animals are going to be okay in those parks. And then we're okay and we can go visit them and we don't have to worry about it. However, the cheetah is, um, I always love the cheetah. And this is probably why, you know, I, I love people like you, people who can think differently, is that the cheetah is a species that doesn't do well in protected areas. The lions in those areas, the hyenas, and they're much more dominant and aggressive when they kill um, the cheetahs, they take their food, they kill the cubs. Hmm. So the cheetah to survive has isn't in protected areas, which is why they're living on these landscapes where there's people and livestock, where there used to be wildlife, and now the wildlife is uh, is less because there's so many humans and livestock, and right. then there's conflict, and then people kill them, or like in areas like Somaliland, they are being, um, you know, caught and then sold illegally um, for the illegal wildlife pet trade. And so there's now a number of other issues that are coming up, but that's really what we're facing today for the Porchita. Amazing animal. Again, if you, wow. I just want everyone to, to, to know what a cheetah is. And, you know, one of the problems worldwide is, you know, people always confuse it with a leopard. So, <laughs> you know, you always see, you know, spots and, and they think, oh, it's 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 a cheetah, and it's really it's a not it's a leopard. And most of the people that we work with in throughout the cheetah's range also don't know what a cheetah is. They all they often call these big cats all tigers, and so they lump everything in together, and they're afraid of them. Um, and it's that fear factor, but it's also the predator factor that is a problem on a global scale because people don't want to live with predators. Our work really has revolved around also working with the communities to teach them about how they need to take care of their livestock. So mm. if they're killing the animal because it's killing their livestock, what role do we as people play in how we're taking care of our animals? Um, are we mm. protecting them? Do we have calving seasons? Do we have, we use livestock guarding dogs, for instance, in Namibia to take care of our, our livestock. To, a big breed of dog that comes actually from Europe where it's been working for 5,000 years. This is a Turkish breed that we use called the Anatolian Shepherd or the Kangal dog. But, you know, using um, herders or like dogs were used for thousands of years. And then, you know, over the last hundred years, I think we as humans have become really lazy in the way that we're managing our livestock. And therefore, it's easier to kill the predator than it is to manage our livestock. Mm -hmm. And then with that, mm -hmm. unfortunately, when you lose your top predators, it also affects your biodiversity of your ecosystem. And again, people are simple and that's not something that they think about on a day-to-day -day basis. We just go about our lives. But um, top predators are really critical for all of us, for our health, for our life, for our livelihoods. So, so, so Laurie, so, so one, a couple of things that jumped out to me. So. Um, you know, you've highlighted the fact that one individual can make a massive difference to the world um, if they dedicate um, their well, their life works or that, that everyone can make a difference was the first thing. The other thing that I'm really curious to understand is that you you mentioned the uh, the the herds people, the, the folks with the livestock, uh, you know, preventing their livestock being killed and then killing the cheetahs. And then you've all, you you also touched on the the wildlife trade, uh, so 
do you have compassion towards the hu the human hu humanity in the situation or you know is there obviously there is a distinction between the farmer that's protecting their livelihood and then the poacher that is poaching to sell the trade or are they are they intermingled um and then the other thing that I'd love you to just uh, touch upon is that these these dogs that you're integrating into these uh that you know the livestock presumably they they deter the cheetahs from coming to to eat the livestock so that that helps with prevention uh but how do the uh, culturally the dog is is not always looked at as a as a as a friend so could you touch on those those points it'd be helpful um and you know how do you react to these poachers you know i mean have you become friends with them i mean obviously they're they're harming the cheetahs but how do you you know, I, I love the way that you've gone to the root cause. You know, it's not just, it's more complicated than that, isn't it? So anyway. It, it's, it's very complicated. And I always say we don't have time for Band-Aids. And so, yes, in conservation, you end up trying to put a Band-Aid on something. And the Band-Aid is, you know, just don't kill the animal. But there is much more in-depth issues. Um, and so that's what we've tried to do is to find out what those deep rooted problems are and try to mend them from the ground up um, instead of from the top down, although you have to work on that side, too. But um, I think from, you know, friends with the poachers in Namibia, it was the farming communities. And yes, I befriended a lot of the farming communities by helping them look at their livestock management and their wildlife management. In, um, in Somaliland, where we also work, the issues have now resonated with um, the farming community. So going out and working with the pastoral ranchers, farmers, um, <clears throat> the reason why it's the same reason that they are catching the cheetah cubs and selling them was to try to get money back from the losses that they have with their livestock. Uh, okay. And there is so much ignorance, I guess I would say, and that's where we started even in Namibia was um, we found that there was a lack of information. And so awareness, information, and education is, is critical. I mean, from our standpoint in Namibia, we've now developed books about cheetahs, multiple books, you know, anything you'd want to know about the cheetah and you were afraid to ask. And we put that into school education programs. And so our education programs go from, you know, throughout, we usually start at like fourth grade through 12th grade for our education work. And <clears throat> we started this back 30 years ago and developed these education programs around not just the cheetah, but its ecosystem and where people fit into this. So people are a very important part of the work that we do. Um, our programs, we call them, you know, future farmers of Africa and future conservationists of Africa, which are the youth that we work with. <clears throat> and from that education component, then you have knowledge base to start with that you can then start developing your programs. And that's what we're mm -hmm. doing in Somaliland as well, is what we realized that there was so much missing info. And what we've been able to do is we've been able to then modify our, our training tools um, and curriculums, and we're now starting to work those um, from Namibia that we can help develop in Somaliland. It's going to take quite some time because we also have to change. Uh, there's culture. Um, you have to change, um, you know, just even translation of it. But we have worked with other cheetah range countries and have de helped develop 
training programs in many of these countries. And so from school education programs to community farmer education programs. And these are kind of called One Health. And so when you're out in a community, you do not just look at, you know, the problem you're having with maybe a, a predator. You have to look at everything from the ground up. How much do they know about their livestock? Um, how healthy are their livestock? What do they know about the health? Which these rural communities really know nothing about the health of their animals. They're, mm. they're very poor people and their you know, animals are either sick or healthy. And if they're sick, there's no veterinarians and they have not been trained at rural medical treatments. And so not only is this affecting the animals, but just think people, you know, right now, even with COVID going on, uh, the communities are not trained even in taking care of themselves in a healthy way. Most humans are not even in big cities. And I think what is called One Health really brings in, you know, from a veterinary side, the health of the, the livestock, you look at the health of the people and you look at the health of the environment and all of those are tied in together. And so I think um, that's where a lot of this awareness needs mm. to go. And what we are trying to develop is to take it from, from all of those levels and not just say there's one problem. These are all tied in together and working with the people through education, I think is one of the most critical things that can be done because people are our problem and people are our solution. They're the only solution that we have today. I'd like to take this moment to introduce to you our sponsor, Flexi, the must-have app to track and manage your subscriptions in one place. So most of us have multiple subscriptions nowadays for things like streaming services, gym memberships and food deliveries. These are great and take the hassle out of buying everyday products that we consume regularly, but it can be hard to keep track of them. That's where Flexi comes in handy, using super secure technology to connect your accounts to see all your subscriptions in a single dashboard, putting you in control of your spending. And what's more, Flexi's subscription marketplace allows you to discover new products you may love, or easy to pause, resume, or cancel in a swipe or two. So give Flexi a try, it's free to download from the App Store, or check out their website at www.flexiapp.uk. That's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk. Back to the podcast. So I can I can see that if you start with um, the veterinarian needs of the livestock, it, it's almost like that is the, the sharp end of the wedge to then have the conversation about integrating the dogs, the livestock, and then I guess that holistic approach. Yeah. So it's not just I mean maybe I, I don't know am I understanding this correctly? So you're you're finding you're finding meaningful ways to engage with the people in the community. Um, that are the ones that are obviously um, killing the cheetahs. Mm. Um, so you're actually helping them, yeah, l lift them up. Uh, and then um, when we when we uh, met in in Smileyland, you were talking about your the sustainable farming methods, which was really really piqued my interest as far as finding other ways for these the local community to to perhaps make an income, uh, which will obviously mitigate their you know any. Um, motivation to uh, to get involved with in the wildlife trade. Is it, could you could you talk a little bit about that and and maybe some of the wider work that you're doing in Somaliland? Because I, I guess most of your work has been in Namibia, and you mentioned Somaliland. Um, so I'd love to love to hear more about what you're doing there as well. 
Great. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, that's the other thing in looking at this. So the people that we are working with throughout the Cheetahs range um, are, are pastoral and um, nomadic farmers, basically. And so they are very, very, very poor. And, you know, again, poverty has a, you know, it's a very interesting problem that we, in my opinion, shouldn't have in the world today, but we seem to have it. And that's why I think all of us, you guys, also in the work that you're doing is trying to look at, you know, outside of the box ideas. Um, and much of what we see is that, you know, people take their livestock with them because, I mean, where we work, it's some of the most arid areas in the world, you know, dry, I mean, and these villagers and nomadic um, herders, you know, they, they don't, they're not tied into electricity in these areas. I mean, it, again, city people don't even understand what that would look like, not being able to just go turn your light switch on and, you know, put my dinner in the refrigerator or stick it in the oven. Um, they don't have anything like this. And therefore, you know, what they're doing is they're taking their herds with them. And that's, you know, their meat on the, the hoof, basically. And to try to look at alternative ways of sustainability. And so some of this really is, you know, added benefit, you know, can you, you can make, you know, cheese out of your goat milk. And if your goats are on the ground there, milk it and make some cheese and that cheese doesn't have to be in a refrigerator and it's an added protein. And then if you keep that goat milking and you don't eat it, you've got a lot of protein that carries on. And these are things that a lot of people have not understood or there hasn't been those simple methods to teach people um, you know, kind of secondary industries, I guess I would say. And that's what we've done is we've looked at um, needs assessments throughout the communities where cheetahs are living and have tried to work with the communities on how to get added value for what they have. Again, it's economic. It's trying to assist them so that they're not having to kill the cheetah. And then looking at the cheetah as their friend, because the same time we're giving them help and benefits and trying not to lose their livestock. And with that, how you, you know, I want to get people out of poverty, basically. Um, and so, you know, for instance, in Namibia, we've got a, a big um, goat dairy and a, a creamery. So that has become, you know, something that Namibia doesn't have, it didn't have cheeses. Somaliland has no cheese. And by the way, I mean, the, we, we met in the Ambassador Hotel, which is, yeah. you know, a very nice <clears throat> hotel that takes really good care of people who come and visit Somaliland. Uh, but with that, the cheese that they have comes from Kenya. And they just got that cheese that just two months ago. They've never had cheese like that before. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I'm working with the planning department there now because the minister of planning loves his goats. And he's just gotten himself a, a milking machine. Well, you can hand milk. We hand milk 50 of our goats every day, twice a day. It, which is, I'm also looking at added job benefit. I want to put people to work. Um, and with that, uh, yeah, I'd rather have them hand milk. But with that, we're trying to look at, again, they've got, we've got lots of camels there um, in Somaliland. Can we, and we can make, you know, camel cheeses and ice cream and fudge for heaven's sakes. That's what we make fudge as well. We make great ice cream. Um, for ice cream, you do need a freezer, but that can be done in town. So you can actually, you know, we're just looking at a variety of different options. Um, and, and again, there is no cheese in Somaliland. So that's another thing. 
some of the other things that we've found, um, again, looking at job creation, uh, we do a lot of craft development in, in um, Namibia. Of course, there's huge craft workshops that go on in Kenya. There is nothing that I've found in Somaliland that people make that you can buy. And obviously, people like to buy things. I know you would have probably loved to have taken stuff back. You probably did to your family, but there's not much. And if it's made by somebody there that has value, um, all of a sudden, these artisans start picking up as well. And that's also an added value. Um, another project that we've been very involved in, which I think would be you know, very interesting to look at in Somaliland, in Namibia, coming down to those root problems, you know, people are killing the animal and that sounds simple. Is it because of their livestock management? Yes, that is part of it. But also we started realizing that due to a lot of overgrazing of the livestock and the way that the livestock is managed throughout Africa and the world basically, is that oftentimes you overgraze land and when you overgraze land, you end up with problems. What we're seeing in Namibia is a um, thickened thorn bush, which has come in and taken over about a third of our country. And that has affected the agriculture industry and it has affected um, being so arid, it's a form of desertification because it's all sucking all of our underground water. Mm. And we started, uh, a program about 20 years ago in a habitat restoration program, trying to realize the problem and it was called bush encroachment. And we started selectively harvesting the bush. And from that, um, we then make a little fuel log, which is a high heat, um, low emission fuel log. And we are a forest stewardship council certified organization, which I am a wow. firm believer in certification. Um, and to just show that you can do things that are proper. And so we are selectively harvesting our bush, um, putting, we've got a staff of like 100 people who are working in the habitat restoration process. Um, and we've gone now into making feed out of this thickened thorn bush. We, we harvest it, we chip it. We make the fuel off. We're now making um, livestock feed or wildlife feed out of this um, chopped bush. And oh. we're also starting to work on uh, biomass electricity where we can actually use it and make electricity. And we wow. started looking at this potential in many other countries. So we've actually had people from Somaliland come down to Namibia to look at our biomass problem and program uh, the problem but the solutions that we've had. Uh, we've had people from Ethiopia come down, obviously Botswana and South Africa have always looked at what we've been doing, but we're trying to look at taking these different alternatives that are all tied in together and making solutions as you can open up the habitat for the, um, from the thick and thorn bush, you can have more grass that grows, then you can have more wildlife, then that mm -hmm. helps with reduction of conflict with the predators because there's wildlife for them to hunt. And also that you then start looking at reduction of your livestock, making it healthier and uh, managing your land in zonation type ways. So those are the kinds of things that we've looked at um, and are trying to, and will try to look at um, assisting in Somaliland as we move more forward there. Right now, we're just trying to stop the catching of the animals and the killing 
and then yeah. education. You know, we've started our education mm. programs going to schools. They're all critical. Yeah, that is I think re- that's really fascinating. Yeah, uh, I, th- I was just going to say, I think it's it's so it's it's incredible how much it's about education, about educating everybody else, about everything going on. I mean, all this knowledge that you've gained over these thirty years, or just how passing that on, which is helping with. Um, the cheaters and everything and actually one thing I, I'd love to know a little bit more about is actually going back to your conservation just to know what sort of things you do there so I guess obviously I, I can imagine but I'd just love to hear firsthand from you what is the sort of processes you're doing uh, the rehabilitation processes and the reintroduction into the wild if you could just share a bit about that that would be awesome and I'd love to hear what a normal day is for you what is a yeah. normal day <laughs> 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 like <laughs> I'm not Dr. sure Mary if Marker, I have a normal what, day. Or is there a normal day? Does that <laughs> my my normal day is you know I, I when I wake up and I have to check on my you know my what's up and I get <laughs> messages from my teams around the world and you know it's like oh my god put this fire out or water that um, to make it grow but um, I've got just an amazing team of staff right uh, I mean the first thing I try to do when I'm in Namibia is go riding. Um, and, and that is, I get up before anybody else and I get out on my horse and that, um, allows me to see the land and, uh, breathe the air, um, and think. And so riding for me is always what focuses me. Um, and then from there, the day hits. So again, I've got a big staff in Namibia, um, and in Namibia, you know, we've got, we've got a, you know, fully registered veterinary clinic there. We've got a genetics laboratory, so we're a, a, a pretty big research center. Uh, we're based on about um, 55,000 hectares of land. So we're a, re, uh, a wildlife reserve as well and um, a model farm. So, you know, we've got our livestock there and, and the management of it um, and then our ecology program. So we've got a very, very, um, you know, as a research center, we study all aspects. So, you know, we've got a medical team and then we've got the ecology team. And from our ecology side, we actually monitor the habitat and um, we also monitor the wildlife. And so a lot of that is doing game counts and knowing what wildlife is out there. We have, we use things like camera traps that are put up and that helps us also monitor the, the cheetahs and the leopards and the hyenas that you don't see. Uh, like you do the antelope when you're doing driving around game counts. Um, and on a, on a different level from, um, from conservation is, you know, we're out in the communities a lot. So our, we've got people that are on the road all the time working with the farmers with their livestock guarding dogs. And the dogs, you know, coming back to them, the breed we have is an Anatolian shepherd, also known as a Kangal dog. And it's a Turkish breed of dog that has been used for about 5,000 years to protect livestock wow. from predators. And they, they mark territory, they bark really loudly, they're a big dog, they're an independent thinker, and they just live with the herds. And from that, they won't necessarily work up in Somaliland because the culture there is something that <clears throat> they, you know, it, dogs are not a part of their, their religion. But there is a little change going on right now. For instance, the Minister of Environment and Tourism has learned about what we do, and she's now put a couple dogs with her small stock. And we think that it could grow as we start teaching the value of using the dogs. Um, Mm. And they're not a pet. 
but um, they're, you know, they're really important, but we do work with the farmers very closely. So we have teams on the road all the time. Uh, we've got big camera trap studies going and we are in um, Somaliland. The go government has given us a piece of land there where we will be developing a sanctuary. And James, I think, you know, we do have and are caring for cheetahs in Somaliland. At both of our facilities in Namibia, we've got about 35 cheetahs that are animals that cannot go back out into the wild that have come in as tiny babies. And in Somaliland, we've got about 55 cheetahs there. Wow. And these are animals that have been caught as tiny cubs by the government and the police that were uh, a part of an illegal wildlife trade, um, ready to get on a boat to Yemen over to the Middle East where they would be sold illegally um, as pets. And so we're working on trying to stop this illegal wildlife pet trade in the Middle East as well. So there's a whole part of the work that we do, which is looking at the demand side, to work with the governments there to try to stop that demand of having these animals mm -hmm. as pets and stop taking them from the wild. But the government of Somaliland um, has given us a piece of land that we will be helping develop similar to like what we have in Namibia. We'll be now starting to develop about an 800 hectare area where the cheetahs that we have right now in, um, in Hargeisa, which are in safe houses. And I mean, just to give you a perspective, last year we ended up with 40 cheetahs coming in over a matter of you know the year. Most of those animals, well, about half of them did not survive because they came to us in such bad condition. So we kind of, you know, fortunately they were caught and fortunately we were able to save the other half, but they come in almost starved to death or starved to death um, with malnutrition, you know, disease, uh, ridden with bugs, you know, parasites. So it's just amazing, but we will be developing now a whole center outside of Hargeisa um, that we've just finished our master plan on, and I'm very excited about this. And we'll be starting to build this center now in the next um, couple months. It's going to take us probably the better part of a year. And um, we are, um, and then how do you build in the middle of nowhere? Um, that's a big question too. Also, we are asking, but we have found, um, we are finding help within Somaliland builders who are going to are coming forward. They're very appreciative of the work that we are doing to help the country. So um, Harry, just from a conservation perspective, all of those are pieces of conservation. Yeah. You mentioned about like rewilding, but um, many of the cats that we are getting in are not animals that really can just go back out into the wild. <clears throat> you get them in as a tiny, tiny baby and they're on mm -hmm. a bottle. They don't know that they're a cheetah anymore. They, um, they, then that's the problem. And that's why we wanna keep them in the wild, which is why the basis of all of our work is to work with people so that they never take them from the wild. We wanna keep a wild population there and that's keeping the people trained in livestock management, wildlife management, and not taking the animal. Um, but if, and if you start looking at rewilding, which is a concept that I think a lot of people think, I grew up with born free. So, you know, born free, we're going to put them all back out into the wild. And it sounds good and it feels good. But I don't think people realize there's that not that much wild left in the world. And that is a concept that is sad. 
<clears throat> but you really, you know, putting an animal back out in the wild is not easy. There's, there's high losses potential. And therefore, the animals that we do rewild are animals that have a very good chance. And we work very closely in things like what's called the IUCN, which is the you know, World Conservation Union that, that has rules on you know, rewilding, veterinary rules. You know, I'm a part of what's called the cat specialist group. Um, and from that, you know, there's a process that if you do put an animal out, it has to have the best chance possible. And so an animal that we might put back out in the wild would be an animal that had been living with its mom until it was maybe, you know, six to eight months of age before the mother died. Um, and then right. that animal's already lived with mom, is hunted with mom. We have to raise it up until it's about, you know, three, two and a half to three years of age because they don't leave mom and their siblings until they're about two, two to two and a half. And so wow. you can't leave young, otherwise they will go to try to find an easy kill, which would be mm. livestock. Um, mm. And then you where do you put those animals and finding the right place. And there aren't that many places that are free of human wildlife conflict. And that's why keeping the wild wild and working with the people to keep those animals wild is the most important job I think that we do. But we have had good success in what we call our rewilding program in Namibia. Uh, but you also have to make sure that you have healthy animals that are going out and not diseased animals because they could also disease your wild population. So you can see all of these things tie in. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you know, con conservation is complex and um, it is not a Band-Aid. And that Band-Aid would be like taking an animal that and not having it killed. So like these confiscated animals from the illegal wildlife pet trade is a Band-Aid of which we have to now take care of those animals for the rest of their mm -hmm. lives. And their lives can be mm -hmm. 16 years of age. Um, and so we don't want them all coming from the wild into captivity. We want to keep them in the wild. But if we have to take care of these animals in captivity, we have to give them the very best care possible for the rest of their life. And, you know, that rest of their life and you know how much they eat and, and how much we have to care for them. Uh, for instance, in Somaliland, we have to bring everything in from outside. So we bring it in from either the UK, from Namibia, from the United States to stock what's there. They have vets, but the vets are trained in livestock. So they don't have the kinds of medicines that we need for, for the cheetahs. Um, and we've got, we've set up you know, our labs there and our entire veterinary clinic has been set up. Um, but we've had to bring everything in to establish that. So that's a capacity building that we're also dealing with within this country that is very, very, very poor. Um, and you know, Somaliland also has a very interesting history because it, it got its independence um, from Somalia 30 years ago during, again, a civil war. Or, uh, and from that, they have not been recognized on a global scale as a independent country. And that causes them great problems, but they are a breakaway and they are a country that is very um, democratic. They've had now you know, five different elections. Yep. Um, they have, they're a, a, a safe country. And for that region, um, I'm just saying that this is important that you have to also look at the politics and support the right governments as well. And Somaliland, I'm very proud to be working with them and helping support 
them as a country growing also. Yeah, and, and actually, I've, on the smile then subject, I mean, I'm having some time on the ground there. Um, it's it's very progressive. Uh, as you mentioned, Laurie, you know, they've had five friend, five peaceful transitions of power over the last 30 years. Not many people know about them. Uh, know about Somaliland, um, but the, the the people are you know they really want they're, they're very proud of the peace their peace um, and they're ready for progress and I think uh, I think getting Somaliland on the map is is a really important part of your work but also you know your your this conservation area that you're creating um, a safe haven for cheetahs because you'd mentioned that they don't always get on in uh, protected areas because there's this consolidation of other predators that. They don't do well, so they're kind of forced out. Um, and then obviously there is a systemic problem. You know, the 55 baby uh, cheetah cubs that you, ha that you have that you're caring for, you know, and, and actually that I think Somaliland also, you know, the education piece, people are ready, you know, and there's a real need for education. And they're starting from, you're pretty, pretty much starting from a, 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 a the ground level. And the, the only way is up, isn't it? I mean, like you said, they're yeah. a very poor country, but the, the folk, you know, the people are ready for this. So. That's really good to to hear about that, and it's wonderful that you're you're doing work in that area. So I have a question for you. So, what is the one thing that you know to be true that not many people agree with you on? Ooh, well, maybe it would be that we can live together in harmony with wildlife and predators. So, <laughs> right on, <sir. laughs> Because most people around the world are scared to death of a predator and would know, not know how to live with it. And so that's why the world is now 50% of the world is living in cities. And I think that's probably yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Because you're safer there. <laughs> um, so that might be, you know, one of the things that I'm trying so hard to get people to understand is that we can actually live in harmony with wildlife. And I think that's what Namibia has done so well with is that the development of what we call our conservancies have really worked together with communities on the ground to live in harmony <clears throat> with wildlife. <clears throat> and then obviously the benefit to them is the added value of ecotourism and the health of their ecosystems. But people are coming to Africa to see wildlife. and. Um, the people on the ground are living with those animals. Without that knowledge, you can be afraid, but with knowledge, you can actually become the best stewards of the earth and, um, and should be the ones who benefit from having the wildlife and having the um, income from having that ecotourism of people coming in and seeing. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. That was brilliant. I had a quick question and I'd be really interest, interested to understand what is the persona of a cheetah like and maybe you could use I think is it Kayam as yes. an example just to explain to our listeners what it is like to get this close to these amazing animals yeah uh, well they are very special and Kayam as you mentioned was the one of the first cheetahs I raised and she's who um made me do it I guess I would say <laughs> she she said yeah you seem to be the picked human being to go over there and save the cheetah and change the world. But yeah. um, I raised her in the 70s and took her, you know, she's the one who I took over and taught to hunt in, in Namibia. But from that, I um, also honored a day for her, which is International Cheetah Day. And that's on the 
4th of December, which was her birthday. And there is an international day. So all around the world, everybody who knows about cheetahs, we all celebrate International Cheetah Day. Amazing. Raising Kayam up was amazing. And I've had um, such amazing experiences um, working with cheetahs now for, you know, most all of my life. Um, and the number of, you know, orphan and infant, infant animals that I've gotten in. But, you know, you raise them up in, in such a way that, you know, they, you know, they need to be on a bottle. Um, mm -hmm. And watching them grow is just amazing. You know, their, their eyes open at about six days of age, at about two weeks, their ears start coming out so they can start hearing. <laughs> and they start walking at about, you know, two weeks to three weeks. By the time they're a month, they're, they're stumbling and starting to run. Um, and by the time they're six weeks, they're following behind their mother, which is just amazing. The rest mm. of the time before that, they're in a, in a den and she's coming and going as the mother hunting um, for them. But at six weeks of age, they're actually able to start following mom a bit. Yeah. Um, they're little fluff balls at that period of time. They've got what's called a mantle that is down their back. And that's actually part of mimicry when it's thought that they can look like what's called a um, a um, honey badger or a, a retel is what they are, which are really aggressive um, carnivore. <clears throat> but also they have um, these amazing tear marks which run down from their eyes. And those tear marks are what makes them look different than a leopard. Of course, the cheetah spots are all polka dots where a leopard has what's called uh, rosettas, which are black circles, usually with a yellow dot in the, in the center. But um, cheetahs are the only cat that has these black tear marks, which run down from their eyes. And those are um, called malar stripes. And they're useful like a sight or a scope on a gun is for a hunter. And it also is sort of like putting black under your eyes like a soccer player, or, you know. And it, mm. But it helps focus their eyes when they're hunting. And so that's mm. what helps them go up to you know, 110 kilometers per hour. Remember, they're the fastest land animal. And if you can imagine what that is like going that speed, they're a sprinter. So they can't go full speed for long distances. They are a very short distance runner. So one stride is about three meters, 20 feet. And when they're running, only one foot touches the ground at any point in time. So there's uh -huh. two points in their stride where their legs are all the way spread out or doubled up. And then the rest uh -huh. of the time, only one foot is touching the ground. <laughs> they have semi-non-retractable claws. So they're the only cat that has claws not like a dog. It's almost, they help get traction so that they can run. And then their tail is like a rudder for balance. So when they're running, they're never just running straight. They're going sideways, back and forth because they're chasing antelope. And their tail helps them so they don't roll over and spin out. So it counterbalances their body. So they're just amazing. Every part about them is built for speed. Aerodynamically built, small head, lightweight bones, small teeth, great eyesight. Um, but special animals, they are the only big cat that purrs. They have a vocalization. They chirp like a bird. They bubble hiss, spat, growl, but the bird-like chirp, I think, is really interesting. But when you raised a cub like this, um, the cats that I've raised, they think of me as their their mom, and they're 
for my job is to again make sure that they are cared for appropriately yeah um, and they are not an animal that should be a pet they're an animal that needs to live out in the wild and we need to revere them in the wild revere their habitat revere their mothers um, and make sure that there is a place for them left in the world incredible for wow. future that's, generations that's, and that's you guys um, wow and harry our time is short so yeah. you know you being 20 i can't guarantee you that those could be cheetahs when you're 40 mm. unless we do more and i yeah. and we need your help to spread the word and you know really hope that the people who are listening to this you know understand how important i think conservation is in the sustainability of our earth yeah. and we can do it i'm counting on all of us that we can do it absolutely so. no that's that's incredible and actually they that are, was on to, to to another question was one how do we educate a wider audience and two actually what i love is that you actually i think one, one thing i read was that at the very beginning you you kind of thought there must be someone else doing this there must be somebody else helping the cheetahs but then you had the realization actually that there wasn't and which is why you started um now i'm sure there are people out there that think the same so how do you start from one going about protecting a species how did you start and how can we spread the word a bit more well about spreading the word thank you i think that's great we do have a ccf uk foundation so we would love everybody to know that so do make sure that you go to our website which is cheetah.org yep dot uk um, and we are a global organization so we're also a nonprofit in somaliland in namibia um, the uk is one of our very big partners the us and canada australia so we are a global organization and trying to spread the word um, and how can we help um, in order to keep doing what we do, we need to keep our funds coming in. Um, and we're not, you know, not being a business, we, we, it's, it's not like we have something to sell other than the fact that we are a group of people and my teams on the ground, we are about, I think our whole staffing um, is between Somaliland and Namibia and the other collaborators we have are probably close to about 170 people. So from that, we're a, a small, dedicated group trying to do work from education, awareness, farmer work, to taking care of these animals. Um, and we need, we need the funding and support. So we ask people to join us in raising the funds to do the work that we um, can do and spread the word that the cheetah is the fastest land animal, but it needs our help in order to survive. And we can do it again. That's what I say. We can make a difference. But... Yeah, I thought there was going to be somebody out there. I call it the they factor. They'll take care of it. There is no they. Mm -hmm. So turn around in circles and you'll find out there is no they, that we is they. Bad yeah, that, English, that's quite an but a point to get across. <laughs> yeah, that, that's inspiring for our listeners. So I think that from that perspective, yeah. We all can, but we just need to do it. Um, and we need to um, come up with our plans and, and, and join groups that are already doing it. And, you yep, know, yep. we don't need to go make another cheetah conservation organization. Join us that are doing this and get involved. Get involved in doing something, please. I guess if there's listeners out there, do something. 
Great message. So, Peter, uh, I know we're kind of getting short on time now. Um, Peter, do you have a, any any questions for? Uh, yeah, I've got yeah, I've got a couple of questions. Um, could you share any? Is there any really good documentaries out there? Again, I said at the beginning, my only cheater knowledge is that they go very fast. So, if I was to look online on uh, Netflix or something like that, is there any specific documentaries or platforms that I should kind of be looking at for more information? Well, we have a very good YouTube channel. So you might go to our YouTube channel. So through cheetah.org. Um, and so there's a lot about the work that we do. Um, there are quite a few cheetah documentaries. I know I've done lots over all my years. Um, and therefore, I think they can be found. Um, I don't. I, I and let me see. What are some of So I think the documentaries are probably some of the good ones. And I think if you look up Cheetah, but if you do go to our YouTube channel, there's a lot of good stuff on there. Um, and even some of the, the programs that we've done on the news, like CNN and I think, you know, 24 France. Um, just recently, we've had a couple programs that have come out from there as well. Okay. And so perhaps, uh, yeah, perhaps we can include some links, can't we, on, the, on our yeah, we'll uh, yes. when we release we'll this episode. Um, and, and even, then, sorry, sorry we've, keep going. we've got even links to our online education programs that if people are interested more in sharing with their kids, um, we, because of COVID last year, we developed, we used to go to schools and we do deal with like, you know, 25,000 school kids a year. We put all of our school materials onto, um, onto a online link. And I can share that with you as well. Great. Um, yeah, my other question was slightly zoomed out a little bit. Obviously, you found your true passion in life, and that is uh, saving the cheetahs, uh, kind of in that way. And your knowledge is just—I think all three of us just sitting here, just like you're just reading <laughs> off about the te- uh, cheetahs. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's amazing. But um, do you have any advice for our listeners in kind of trying to find that uh, one thing in life that they kind of absolutely love? Um, obviously, for you. It came 30 years ago when you moved to Oregon and you moved next door to this wildlife park and you kind of popped in and you were like, okay, this is perfect for me. Um, But yeah, just I'm always interested to find out kind of what advice people would give to to a young 15 year old version of me that is just out there searching for their direction in life. That's maybe a big question. I I know that's hard, but I think um, go with your passion. And, you know, I, I think that people say that I'm lucky that I have passion and I can't even imagine not having it. But I mean, I guess I'm passionate about anything I'm doing, any part of my job um, that I mean, you know, so many of these jobs that I've explained aren't just cheetah. Mm-hmm. They are. But it, it, it just excites me to figure out that we can save the world. So that's my passion is. Um, anything that I do, I just, I'm, I'm passionate about it. I mean, I get excited, you know, cleaning, I get excited, you know, painting. I, I just, you know, I, it's just what I'm doing at that point in time, but, you know, try to find if you've got a passion and, you know, people, obviously parents play a really important role in your friends as well. I know when I picked up and moved to Namibia, I sold all of my belongings and I was at the Smithsonian and you know, I had like the job of the world for what I was doing. And people would say, what are you doing? Are you crazy? What about your retirement? And it's like, well, how can I retire <laughs> when I know what the world is doing? And even today, I mean, I'm never going to retire. This is life. Um, 
And and that's that's exciting, I guess. But I had people who said, you know, why are you going? What are you doing? And that didn't really help. But I had a couple of my best, my friends who basically said, well, if anybody's going to do this, you are. Great. I'll get behind you. I support you all the way. Uh, my parents, you know, they was like, what are you doing? You're moving away. But the support that I had from my parents was unbelievable. You know, they're the ones that sold my horse when I was in high school. And they thought that I was going to grow up and do something with myself. And I always joke with them and say, you know, the animals were my life. <laughs> and, you know, they wanted me to be a scientist. Well, I am a scientist. But but my interest was around the animals. And they 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 encouraged me and then they kind of stopped at that 15 year old time, let us say, and thought that I was going to do something. And people don't realize when you're that age that you really maybe have some ideas and, and you're maybe good at something, really good at something. Well, you know, you need encouragement. And so embrace it and get it from, and it might not come from the ones you love most, um, but, but it might come from people who can also give you really good advice. Great. Yeah, it's just find, finding, those, finding those people is uh, yeah. the key, basically, yeah. Yeah. So surround so yourself it, with good people. <laughs> yeah, so I have, a, I have a question. So a couple of final questions. Uh, so can you recommend, is there a book that you'd recommend? What, what's your favorite book uh, for our listeners to read? Um, and then uh, the second one is, um, if you were to uh, meet anyone for coffee in the world, who would that be? Oh, my. Oh, who would I meet for coffee? That's interesting. Hmm. I'll think about that one. Um, okay. And let me see. I think I'd like to have a cup of you. coffee with the queen. That might be. I think I'd like her. The queen. Okay. <laughs> Just for fun, right? Um, okay. And let me see. Maybe who else? But Okay, that sounds good. Just because I think she's a great conservationist and I think she would be delighted to know what we've done throughout many of her um, countries um, that she, you know, the UK is a part of and conservation is very important to her as well. And um, let me see, what was your other question? Never asked. Who a, I was a, maybe a book, a, maybe a book, a book well, that inspired you that you might recommend to our listeners have a look at. That's interesting. Yeah, I think one of my favorite books was called Centennial by James Michener. And if I had to, it's a big, thick book, but it's actually the history of the United States. Um, okay. But out of it, what it taught me was it showed it started. Michener always starts with kind of evolutionary things, but it shows actually the evolution of many of our species from bat, um, you know, what beavers to horses, actually, and how the land bridges came together. But also shows how the the different peoples have come together to make a nation, and I say that because I am such a believer in we as human versus being separated out by who you are, and I love people for who they are, and I and that's maybe mm -hmm. one of the things that that people need to know is that that. You know, people are people are people, and we all need to love each other and take care of each other. And that's maybe also a part of this one health part of me that I believe so strongly in is that together we can do more. And um, mm, that's lovely. And we're more close to each other than we are different. And those differences make us 
individuals. And that's what makes everything special. But we need to embrace each other and love each other. And with that, you end up, I think, having, you know, peace and building community and looking at a vision for the future. So I'm, I, I, I think that's what I got out of that book. And if I had to be on a desert island, I'd probably read it a few times. It's very thick. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, well that, that's a great, I think that's a really great way to end. I think that's, yeah. a, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for, you know, spending time with us, mm-hmm. um, Laurie. It's been really nice to hear your stories and experiences. And I think we've all learned something here. Absolutely. Hopefully no, you've, you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Thank you for listening to our conversation today with Dr. Laurie Marker. I think we can all agree she is an incredible lady that is doing some incredible things for these cheaters and really is making a difference. So for next week's episode, we are sitting down with young entrepreneur Anthony Meller, who is the director of the award-winning company White 2 Label Manufacturing, where we go into conversations about his early stage as an entrepreneur, outgrowing his flat, moving into his new warehouse, his growing team, and much, much more. You definitely want to join us for that conversation. Thank you, as always, to our sponsor, Flexi, who is allowing us to take control of our subscriptions, all from that single dashboard. Head over to their website at flexiapp.uk. That's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk. Have an awesome day. We'll see you next time.